Hiya. Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. It's a full house this week. Me, Dan, Jeff and Alex. We're with Mel Reynolds. He's a guest. Jeff's been talking about getting on for ages. He's a architect or building designer who's very keen on high performance building. He's a man who's made passive house standards work for him and his clients, improving the performance of buildings while working out how to prevent the costs from becoming onerous. Like he's done his research, he understands it very much in the vein of Peter Warm and Sally Gobber using the building physics to improve the value of the things he's creating. And he seems to have a handle on how to scale these things. He's a brilliant speaker and all. Also, housekeeping, the guest who we had lined up uh, asked if they could bail at the last minute because they were rinsed out and didn't say they'd do you, the listener, justice. So we postponed that issue and dragged Mel in quite hastily. So that's just to be clear, because the way Jeff refers to it makes it sound like they just dropped out and we don't want them to feel like that. But by the same token, it was very late in the day that we organised this and Mel is an absolute hero for joining us. So it's all good. The long and short of the conversation is that good planning and design will improve the impact of your building in terms of comfort and carbon without necessarily increasing construction costs, using sound building physics, clever design, and thinking about the actual user of the building. He was able to talk us through his own experience, undertaking and learning about Passive House, its application in Enerfit as a learning experience for himself, but importantly, leading him to understand how this is scalable, which is where the economies are going to be found, because there's no getting away from the fact that it's there. And he told us all about how he's made it work. We're very much focused on the practical and pragmatic. Any virtuousness is just a detail. It's all about making the most of what you got to work with, working within the sort of restrictions that everyone faces from space, site, schedules, regulations, certification, finance. He gives us a piece-by-piece description of a process or a set of processes that even I could follow. So wherever you are, In spite of Mel making reference to Irish regs, there are lessons that everyone can take from this. So whether you're in UK, North America, or as far as the Antipodes, or even as far away as El Salvador, for that matter, we've got one listener there. Hiya. Anyway, let us get into it. We do say we're going to talk about the housing crisis and climate anxiety, uh, but they are conversations that we, we didn't have time for. And if you get something out of this, Please share it with someone else that you think you will as well. You probably know someone, so crack on. Um, all right, enjoy. There. All right, here we go. He's back. Yeah, you are. You're back. Where are you? It sounded so hopeful for a moment. Exactly. Now, Mel, are you there or not? I'm here. Yeah. Can you hear me? I can. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, in the wilds of uh, of of Kalani. Uh, oh, well, crack, you know, I think there's a bit of a uh, uh, Wi-Fi jamming stuff going on here. So um, I don't know. It could well, be the the locals. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, really nice to meet you, Mel. I'm Dan. Uh, Hi, Dan. This is Alex. Uh, you, Hello. You know Jeff already. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've been talking about this for ages, but we left it to Jeff to organise. That's why it's taken so long. So thank you very much for joining us at this sort of hasty interval. Yeah, no and I problem. should say when, when uh, we we had been talking about having you on for ages, we hadn't 
planned you for today. We had somebody lined up and they just bailed for us at the last minute. It's listen, I I I take not no offense, Jeff, to being your third choice for this. It's absolutely fine. I'm just glad to be on the invite list, even though I'm way down at the bottom. It's absolutely fine. I mean, you weren't third, mate. Uh, no. <laughs> that one there, okay. We'll that. <laughs> uh, we were think, th- talking beforehand about what might, uh, what kind of stuff uh, we'd want to cover. Um, in terms of the subject matter, Jeff said that the banner headline that we could use is "You have been known to make the claim that uh, an NFIT retrofit needn't cost any more than a standard retrofit." Yeah. Okay. Which. I mean, applies <laughs> in the face of 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 reason, Mel. <laughs> um, and then there's the work that you've been doing with regard to the the housing crisis. Yeah. So there's something interesting in terms of the housing crisis, which is applicable on both sides here yeah. and North America. I've, that's been in the the few times I've mentioned in the Twitter this week. I can see that debate raging there. And the other Let's thing see- we were talking about was uh, was uh, the uh, your anxiety, your climate anxiety, Mel. Um, the stuff we were talking about recently about the AMOC uh, sh- uh, slowing down or potentially shutting down, uh, the Atlantic Mid- Meridian Ocean Current, that is. So it's just, you know, the general kind of um, omni-apocalypse. I, 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 you know? I think just fire ahead and see what, where we go. On it. All right, well, should we crack on with the the bold claim, which I'm delighted to hear, uh, that there is no extra cost to win an NFIT retrofit? Because... I mean, that is well bold. I mean, it, it feels counterintuitive, but in our experience, like knowing that there is no actual extra cost to a passive house build, it feels like, oh, well, maybe. And you're a man who's got the experience of it. So, yeah, do you want yeah. to tell us about that? In fact, would you mind telling us a bit about who you are for our yeah. listeners? First? Yeah, sure. Because Jeff's given us the scoop on you, but uh, we'll let you describe yourself because it might be a, a little more positive. I think <laughs> Jeff's <laughs> he's spoken very nicely, but you know what he's like. Yeah, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. Listen, uh, well, I suppose my my background is I've probably over thirty years experience as a registered architect now, quite a lot, long time, broad ranging. I would have started off in design oriented practices, graduated towards more commercial stuff before the crash. Uh, specializations in project management and conservation, and then subsequently would always have had an eye, like a lot of architects, on, you know, the environment and renewables and would have looked at, for example, uh, BEDZED development years ago, uh, which was one of the first ones out of the blocks in the UK, then looked at the building of the future, looked at the BREAM standards where they're coming out for code zero, trying to, I suppose, trying to, like a lot of people, what we do is because we're really conservative as a profession, we have to try and make sure what we build so that it doesn't leak and doesn't works incrementally improve what I was doing and in terms of the materials that we were using, the specifications, etc. So I suppose really it, it it's sort of a gradual process. I mean, the, I would have used uh, effectively a passive standard specification back in 2008. And I went out on my own in 2008, a great time. Uh, thought things were going to get rough. I didn't realize how bad they were going to get. <laughs> but um I would have used external insulation for the first time with aerated block work back in 08. And no one I knew, I phoned around to see what was it like and, you know, was it were there any issues with it? And no one had done it. So my first sort of big step in my own standard build for residential would have been using that. And, and the sort of specification I was targeting, informed by, you know, 
the Kingspan structure that had been done was U values of 0.1, really low, effectively a passive house standard U values. Um, and from then, so for me to go from that to the passive standard was relatively easy because I'd already been building for, you know, 10 years with those really low U values. We'd gone in 08 as well. Triple glazing became cost effective because some really smart guy worked out the fact that you can do three layers of four millimeter glass. It's the same weight and cost as two layers of six millimeter glass. And then gradually all the glass manufacturers cottoned down to this and started making triple glazing very, very cheaply or a lot cheaper than it had been. Um, so, can I just ask about the the, aer- the aerated block work? Is that what you were talking about the other day, Jeff? Like the figure eight concrete block? No, 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 no. Aerated is is a, a, a autoclaved aerated concrete is where you it's like an it's like a, a different way of making a concrete block. Uh, where it, air is a fantastic insul- insulator, so an aerated concrete block uh, has effectively little po- tiny pockets of air within it, and therefore it has a uh, a far superior thermal conductivity than a standard concrete block. Oh, thank you. That's just for me. I'm not a technical person. I'm still, uh, in spite of having been long time in the game, I'm still a bit of a dummy in some of those regards. Oh yeah, well, but, but I mean, and many others, Dan. Many. Yes, many all right. Thank you. Yeah. But the I suppose the interesting thing is to get to these levels of superior performance, the actual construction got simpler, which was which caught my eye. And I remember the exercise I, I had done an exercise probably in about 2003 for a bigger practice I was working on about how to future-proof our planning permissions, right? So basically looking at, say, schemes of two or 300 units, what size of wall would you need to have to make sure it would hit these better standards? So, for example, if you have an apartment building that's on a very tight site, if your external wall goes from 300 millimetres to 450, it can affect the actual footprint of the building and the number of units you're getting. So I'd looked at various different types of construction to see which was the most cost-effective simplest and also the sort of tightest you could do and the one that seemed to tick all the boxes was external insulation because it was masonry you basically were building a masonry building and putting something on the outside of it with one trade so that seemed to be a a no-brainer so when i i started doing my own stuff the first time i applied that sort of passive standard for fabric was on a protected structure and extension near where i lived and again that was a modern extension on a protected structure so you had the conservation aspect of it and in compatible, the, the sort of compatible modern extension, but with a really, really high specification. So again, the strategy for that was very compatible with, with the, the passive standard where you're looking at Enerfit, where you try and anything new you're doing, you do it to the highest specification you can. And that compensates for the other areas of the existing building where you can't, it's not possible to upgrade it. We're, you not, know? we're, not, we're not appropriate. To- <laughs> not appropriate, or you wouldn't be allowed to. You can do it, smell, anybody can do it, and then you can be, and then you can suffer the consequences of doing it later, you know? Yes. So, I mean, like, for example, you've got, say, if you had a Georgian building, the brick facade can't be touched. There's certain, you can upgrade that, but to a certain standard. If you're doing a new extension on the back of it, do that super insulated, zero, U values 0.1, and that will bring, that will actually contribute towards the overall building performance. So I'd already sort of developed that over the years and ev- heading towards it. And then the fi- it's really the final step on that journey for me was, I think Jeff was involved in organizing in 2016 or 2017. It was a lecture by, um, it was at Michael Bennett in Dunleary. It was a lecture about the Madeira Oaks development, which was a typical, you know, builder-led estate of three-bed semi-Ds where they'd done phase one 
to the current standard and phase two is built to the certified passive standard. And the quantity of surveyor stood up and did a lecture in detail about the costs. And the cost was, I think, 700 euros difference per unit, something tiny. It was less. So at that point, I said, you know, and, and I would be the biggest sort of critic or cynic when it comes to new technologies and do they work, do they not? Uh, it was, you know, when something like that's presented to you by the person who's doing it with the detailed spreadsheet of cost, you sort of go, okay, he's answered all my questions here. So at that point, I said, this, there's no, there was no longer any excuse for me not to go off and sit through the Placifest training course run by Mossart and do the horrendous, uh, really difficult exam and, and discover that my short-term memory isn't what it used to be and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> so it's it really what, uh, like that, where you see a sort of a mainstream typology like 3 MED being built to a far superior standard in terms of quality control and performance for, I think the figure was 700 euros. Shane Coakley, I think, has quantified it at the time. It was 700 euros cheaper to build then the standard building at the time, you think, okay, that's it. End of story. QED is finished. And basically, my experience to date, any when I did fast forward to 2019, when I was doing a muse for myself, we uh, did at a quantity of Damien Barris was involved in it. We did the same, effectively the same specification I've been using for 10 years, except made it airtight added in a few other bits, looked at thermal bridging, which ended up being very easy to do, which had been a very difficult thing from a technical point of view up to that point until we started looking at it, and got it to Passive Plus. And we found that, that was cheaper to build again. So for new build on a really difficult site. So my experience to date is the Passive, to achieve the Passive standard if you're doing new build, in terms of construction cost is slightly cheaper. There's more involved because you have to get modeling. You have to do your PHPP modeling, get in your specialist consultant to do that. If you want to get certified, that's an added expense. But in terms of your hard build cost, my experience at that time was it was about 7,000 euros cheaper to build 115 square meters to the passive standard. And that included for slightly more insulation, better glazing, better G values, but again, the big saving on that one was we spent, I think from memory, about 6,000 euros extra on glazing. We used internorm glazing, which was really good. Um, insulation was that we used phrenolic insulation on the outside. And uh, it was about 6,000 euros more expensive. But the saving, we didn't put a primary heating system in it. And that was because the passive house planning software told us we didn't need it. So that gave me, if I wasn't using that, I would be... I, I will put it in anyway to cover ourselves. So we saved about 13,000 euros from memory on underfloor heating up, upstairs and downstairs because we didn't need it. So that's 7,000 euros. So I, I was looking at this from the point of view, how far can I get with a budget for a, nor a normal budget in a normal house? And to get the difference between NZEB at the time and passive was the position of the windows. Everything else was the same. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. The windows are slightly better quality. I used a little bit extra insulation. The labor was the same. In terms of cost, it's an extra one inch of insulation. It's nothing. So the biggest difference to get thermal bri bridge free details there, we moved the frames of the windows and doors out by 50 mil into the insulation. That was it. So the bit, like, between having a window seat or, or, or somewhere to put a plant, a nice feature with windowsill or not, you know? Well, again, it was looking. I was looking at this as if if I was a, a developer doing a hundred of these, what is the most cost effective and simplest way to do it with a bunch of guys who have no expertise in this? So we used uh, 
blower-proof paint-on waterproof um, air-tight membrane inside, which is ex- an excellent product. We worked out a way with the the supplier there to do it with plasterboard and dabs, which is the way that most spec builders would do internals is on masonry. Is you have your masonry wall, dab and slab your plasterboard. It gives you service cavity. I wanted to keep it like that. I didn't want to use battens because that would be slightly more expensive. So with blower-proof, we came up with a way. We said that works fine. We could do it. Um, so effectively, it was a, a very, a very scale. The technology, and again, you're using block layers, you're using masonry, you're using lighter blocks. I d- I put in a few things, overcompensated a little bit that I wouldn't do again, but um, it was very cheap. So, and we took that seven thousand euro saving, and then I said, okay, let's do the PV thing. Let's see if we can get it to passive plus, and that went. That I think paid for pretty much for the photovoltaic install on the roof. So, you you know, for a really similar Bigger budget. Was, yeah, as well. Yeah, so if really similar budget on a very, very tight site, like that site was 135 square metres. The gross floor area of the building for planning purposes is 115, 120 square metres. We had two mm-hmm. car parking spaces, 60 square metres of, 64 square metres of garden space, and we had 24 panels on the roof of the building. So it was as as tight a site as it could possibly get. And the bit, the extra over on that was a saving of 7,000 euros before you got to your. And it's it's actually really lovely to have that. Sorry, Dan, I'm I'm, going to keep on stopping you from talking. (laughs) My repayment purse was six, 700 years impression, you know? Um, So um, the 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 point was, um, uh, the other thing I really liked about this one in terms of responding, how good architecture responds to to, uh, these kinds of restrictions. It's an upside down house. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the issues, difficulties, I suppose, would have been, uh, uh, on such a tight site like that, having a living area, having light and windows and all that kind of crack. Um, and, and you solve that through, through inverting it, through going, through, through putting the bedrooms downstairs and the, and the, uh, and the living area upstairs. Yeah. And I mean, one part of that again is the whole idea of sustainability isn't just about building performance or about materials or what you're doing. It's about getting more from less. So one of the difficulties there is in the UK and Ireland is you have to put in, you know, your entry level needs a disabled access toilet, right? So that means that frequently the plans you see of housing is where you come in, particularly smaller plans, they're bisected by quite a large WC in the middle of the plan. And you have a utility room beside it and you have this arrangement where you have a living room split from your kitchen diner at the back and your bedrooms are upstairs. One of the benefits of doing an inverted plan is you have no effectively no hall space upstairs because you emerge up into your living dining space. You don't need a toilet up there and your bedrooms are downstairs with your main bathroom and possibly an ensuite. So the effect of what a lot of people don't look at is the net usable space. So it's if you look at any building or house for sale, you'll find the circulation is probably about, you know, tw- anything from 20 to 30 percent, which would be your circulation, storage, halls, bathrooms, all that stuff. On that particular house, the circulation, I think, was about 12%. So it had the same feeling as a building of about 1,500 square foot or 135 square meters, and it was quite a bit smaller. But the reason for that is the inversion. That also coincidentally helped on um, temperature levels because it meant there's less chance of overheating in your bedrooms because hot air rises. So it worked really well in terms of the research, you know, the mechanical heat ventilation recovery system and the way that heat rises in your building as well um and it, it, it sort of worked from that so there's a number of different i was looking to see first of all you know the site area that the building used 
was two thirds the minimum site for a three bed semi D. So that means from a development point of view, I could do three of these on a typical site that would only fit two normal three beds. Second thing is the internal arrangement of it meant that I had more usable space, I had the same usable space inside than I had in a much bigger house because of the arrangement of it. And I suppose the third thing was the performance house. So I was trying to hit a number of different little milestones as I went through to see how much you could you squeeze out of this. Um, and then you have the two car, car parking spaces if needed. I suppose the biggest uh, eye opener for me was when we looked at the energy management point of view, which with Tim Cooper, who, who was involved in the green building here 28 years ago. Ireland's leading PV expert. Yeah. I mean, he, he is a man. It just turns out that he was doing a, a study on this at the same time. And we know, I know, we know his daughter quite well. And she said, Oh, my dad might be interested in talking to him. I said, All right. So I explained this building to him. And he said, Do you mind if I have a look at it? And I said, No, not at all. So any, anyway, the whole thing evolved into a complete demand control model on the building, which Tim generated for this, which was done at five minute intervals. So we were trying to match up the PV generated by the building with the demand at the same time, keeping the loads down. And we've measured that and it was accurate to within, I think, 2%. But the interesting thing about the Passive House Plus standard, which is where you your building produces energy from the roof, was that you have all these energy savings, but you're still losing an awful lot of energy to the grid. If you plug in an electric car into the house, you get about 10,000 kilometers from the roof as well. That's with like two hours a day, plug in your car. So the cost and energy saving generated by the house was, say, 700 euros, 800 euros a year. You do that for a car, an electric car, it's the same amount. So our total energy bills at that stage for everything were, I think, about 300 euros a year. That's for heat, light, hot water, all of our utilities. When we plugged in our car, the total cost to run the equivalent of a diesel golf, which would have been an e-golf at the time, for 15,000 kilometers, raised the cost to about 420 euros a year. The real eye-catcher on that was the carbon dioxide savings were incredible. Right? Where I think it was less than a ton of carbon for a family. We were a family of six. Now, it was a tight fit. But for a typical dwelling with car, it, the, the carbon dioxide reductions was absolutely gobsmacking. And that's what using adapting existing technologies, which still could be improved, not worried about sort of nobody using a car, assuming, okay, we're still going to have to use a car, which is fine, minimizing the land area needed for the building as tight as possible and getting more internal usable space out of it. So when you put yourself to it, you can actually squeeze a huge amount out of these projects if you're trying to see how far you... So basically that one we were trying to see, I was trying to see how far you could get on a normal budget. And it's, it was amazing. And the other aspect in terms of embodied carbon, again, it, it's like the whole idea of like the, an industry can't change overnight to be from one thing to another. It has to, it has to evolve, right? So I was trying to adapt a sort of really standard type of building construction. And that was... You know, it looks great, but it's basically, it's almost like Hollowbrock dry line, the sort of spec building that you see 20, 30 years ago, except it was external insulation, timber floors, timber roof, two-ply membrane on the roof. That's about 50 years old technology. And you've got really good quality windows in it. And you have, it, but it's, it's, it's modeled so that it actually works. And you have your MVH or your air quality is superb in it. You, in terms of materials and embodied carbon, we looked at this and I said, okay, let's let's see if how far we can get this. So 
aerated block work is quite good because it uses GGBS recycled material in it up to 50%. So I said to the builder, what about getting, let's pay a bit extra and get all of our concrete 50% GGBS, which would be Ecosam uh, concrete. So my builder at the time said, what's, eco, what's GGBS? And I said, oh, well, just ask them. So he came back to me and said, actually, I think it was Kilsarin Concrete at the time, supply it, no extra charge. They just don't do it because people don't ask for it. So I said, perfect. So all of our concrete that went into that had 50% GGBS. And the next thing for timber, when I look back at my old notes, I said, can we get FSC certified timber throughout? Again, I said, let's pay the premium and get, you know, get the, stand, the proper sustainably sourced timber. And I think Sean Regan, who's the builder at the time, came back to me and said, actually, I was on to Glennon's and he said, all of their timber is FSC certified. So it's a great. So even in terms of the improving what you're doing, if you ask for it, it's there. And frequently people just don't ask for it. So, you, ha- you know, and then if you layer on, uh, you know, low flow, nine liter per minute uh, sanitary wear, it's no extra cost. Put in probably the one item that makes sense that people should be putting in that, that there's no cost benefit on is rainwater harvesting. And we put in a 5,000 litre rainwater harvester in that. And the reason for that was it just makes sense to do it. And it would, would have been impossible. It's like the size of a small car. So it would have been impossible to do that retrospectively. So there are some things like air tightness or rainwater harvesting that are really difficult to do later on. And even if they're a bit extra to do, just do them. And, you know, rainwater harvesting, I think we're going to have at some point, I believe we're going to have water charges back. Rainwater harvesting is a total no brainer because it takes it reduces your potable water requirement and it also reduces the outflow onto your drains in uh, high rainfall events. It attenuates the, the rainwater discharge into your system. So I think that's going to come back. So, you know, it, it's there are certain things that are a bit extra to do, but make a huge amount of sense because the question is, how much will it cost to do it retrospectively? You know? Yeah. Well, what you've described there, like, is this really a very sophisticated array of design and systems thinking and integration? Like, you're using old technologies, you're accounting for future use of new technologies, like thinking about the use of just basic insulation mixed with photovoltaics thinking about electric cars for instance now that requires some very sophisticated design thinking from a project management and specification perspective as well as just the upfront design like the point before jeff like kept talking over me uh, earlier on in the conversation the, the bit i was trying to ask was like you raised an interesting point potentially of distinction which we've not covered before So we are happy to accept that the cost of construction for Passive House, the additional cost of construction is nil, and potentially you can do Passive House for cheaper. But I just wanted to check, like, does that cost account for the additional design work that you referenced having to be done up front? Because that could be, certainly I would expect that in the UK to be a segregated cost and then something that was used for marketing garbage uh, through a sort of sleight of hand you know, hide the cost and then charge them for it further down the line. Like, do you find that's the case? Like, is it is this an all-in cost or is the design part appreciated on a different balance sheet? Well, that, that's a really good question because, I mean, those costs I was quoting you there are your construction costs. And there is a separate cost, which I identify to clients for modelling. 
And what I do is I get in again, I can do it. I'm not as good as them and I'm not as fast as them, but I could do it if I was doing it as part of my own service. But I get in third party people like, for example, uh, Bob Ryan, Earth Cycle Technologies. He's excellent. So I get him in to do a thermal model and I do this on all my projects. And I'm quite happy to take a hit on my fee to allow that to be done, because basically I use the PHPP design suite of software almost like as a, I use it as a design tool for projects because it's brilliant. I mean, to, for people who aren't aware of it, the PHPP software is the sort of backbone of the Placid House standard. It's it's a monster Excel program that you put in, you're building in enormous detail in. You put in the altitude, location, orientation, size, size of windows, wall specifications, what you're doing for your mechanical ventilation systems. You put in any overshadowing. It's geolocated as well, so it's location specific. You know, my, my, my way I describe it is the brilliant thing about it is it's so detailed and the real drawback is it's so detailed. So, you know, early stages, architects don't like it because we like to keep things fluid. But this takes into account everything, the position of your windows in the wall, the thickness of your mullions, the type of glass, if there's any shading, if there's any trees, etc. But what it does is it gives you a number at the end. It tells you how your building is going to perform. And we know from all of the post-completion studies done over the years that there's no performance gap. So the BER software that we have in Ireland and the equivalent in the UK, for example, is a target you have to achieve compliance with. They were never intended to be design tools. This thing, as a 30-year-old, rigorously tested and peer-reviewed system for building performance design, not just for achieving the passive standard, but for any standard. So it's a brilliant way to model what you're doing. And I found it to be to actually save money at the back end of it. An awful lot of what we do is, you know, you do your design, you do your budgets, you do your costings, your tender comes back, it's over budget, you have to value engineer. A lot of that value, value engineering stuff. And when you're on site, you get hit with certain extras. Oh, listen, there's a different system here, which is 20% cheaper, let's use this one. Is it reliable? Is it not? An awful lot of those decisions, if they're done properly, are hugely time consuming and fee and consume fees. The lovely thing about having this detailed model done at the outset is you put in the, the performance characteristics of it. If it's a glazing system, put it in the three or four fields. It tells you what happens at the back end. It's an incredibly beneficial value engineering device at the back end. So I think, you know, for design teams who are quoting for this, if they were aware of it and how useful it is, they would assume that as being a nil cost in their fee proposals because it saves so much time at the back end to do something like that for a house would it be 1500 euros 2000 euros something like that so if you take the typical cost of a house at you know 250 to 300000 euros it's a really small price to pay for a, a very useful design tool as you go through to to work out your specification and also it tells you for designers it's incredibly valuable as a defense document if you have performance issues later on in your building and you say, hold on a minute, you've got, you know, your building is costing too much to heat, it's drafty, it's whatever. You have a design done at the outset, which is integrated, that integrates your mechanical and electrical systems, your building fabric, your air tightness, your ventilation strategy, the whole lot. And it tells you definitively how that's going to perform. So it's from a, from a, a professional point of view, there's two really really good benefits to this. Number one is value engineering. 
which makes it makes value engineering easy and simple and takes all out of it. And number two is it's really good from a professional uh, defense point of view. Yeah, well, it's value engineering to deliver value for you. <laughs> like, no, sorry, for the client, not just yourself. That's what I meant. But Alex, like it sounds very much like exactly what Mel's describing sounds like how we've just reoriented our other business, like the deep research and user experience strategy. Do all you plan it up front, get the brief right from the get-go, and then crack on. Yeah, well, doing the planning up front is, is well, from our perspective, is the secret sauce that makes everything successful. But the thing I've been sort of dying to ask, nevertheless, is, to put it bluntly, what's the catch? Because the way that you're explaining this does sound, to be honest, too good to be true. Like everything you've set out sounds perfect, and you're saving money. But if we were really saving money, if it was so perfect, so good, then why is it not being, or why is it not being adopted so widely? Because most companies want to obviously save money, and if this is the way forward. Why is it not happening everywhere? So is it maybe that this is something that's specific to certain uh, building types or certain projects, certain areas, certain countries? Uh, or do you really think that actually this is something that is absolutely perfect and the problem is the, the humans in the, in the equation, really? Well, I, I think that it will, it will be adopted because it is a no-brainer. I, I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't be, uh, you know, trying to force this on anyone. I'm quite happy. I know it works. I proved to myself it works. We've analyzed it, in particular for Enifit, which we'll come on to in a minute. It's really good. So for me, it's sort of an inevitability. Um, you know, I, I would look at this, for example, you've got the, the uh, development up, up the north, which is going to be one of the biggest passive house developments in, in Ireland. Park, it is, yeah. Park, it Jeff, is, yeah. I would look at this and say smart people don't need to be persuaded. They go off and do their own research and come to their own conclusions. So if there is, you know, I, I think a lot of people are, you know, particularly speculators and developers are missing a beat here because if there is a perceived cost or prestige to the passive standard, there you go, it is that. And what we're talking about here is there's a perception that it costs more money. But if it actually doesn't, if it's slightly cheaper, for somebody who's smart enough to go off in the research to go, hold on a minute, I can actually reduce costs, get a better product, and charge a premium for it at the same time. So for the people who are smart, like, for example, the Durkins who did uh, Silicon Park a while ago, you've got Madeira Oaks, you've got the Bennetts, you've got the guys up the north now. They're smart. They've gone off and they, you know, they've looked at the numbers and they said, hold on a minute. They'll do one or two, try it out and go, actually, there's no drawback to this. Same way I've done it. And they say, you know what, let's do it and let's charge a bit extra for it. And as a consumer, if you're being presented with the choice of your minimum standard NZEB A2 rated home, which may be 80% more to heat, or a passive house certified building on the other side, how much extra will you get for that? Now, it may be that three or four years ago, there's no uh, premium on it. My experience when I came to selling our Muse was there was an enormous uptake on it. And the agent at the time, this is during COVID when we were, were had it uh, on view, we were packed to the gills of people looking at it. And I think a lot of it was, it, it got a bit of good PR from Frank McDonald came out and had a look at it and, and was very impressed and wrote, wrote a very flattering article about it. But I think that the, certainly the mood of my experience is that the consumer wants this. And this is, you know, all the stuff we're hearing about the environment now is getting more and more louder. If we're heading towards a recession as well, if you're if you're if you're 
building houses. You want to make some, uh, uh, you want to give a bit of clear blue water between what you're providing and somebody else. If it costs nothing extra to build it or marginally nothing extra and you're achieving a much better standard and if it looks well and if it ticks all the boxes for somebody, you're going to sell yours quicker than the next person. That's where this comes into its own, for sure, in a recession. For for designers, I think smart designers will go off, will do the training course, will realize this is a real growing area and I there's a huge market potential for this stuff and it will give me an advantage over Jeff or Mel who hasn't done the course. I can I understand it and I know what's involved here. I think from a from a design point of view, the most important thing for me here is it simplifies everything. It makes the standards really I know if I can hit the passive passive standard and prove it at the outset, I don't have to worry about air tightness, different materials, different standards. I because I'm well exceeding it. So for me, it's the whole it trying to achieve the passive standard, the revelation for me as a designer was that it was a lot simpler and a lot easier to do. To get the thermal bridge free details was the position of the windows and the wall. That was it. I couldn't get over it. And you know, using compact foam under it to support it. It was so easy. It was incredible. And over the years, I would have seen very elaborate de- and very expensive details using steel and different materials to do this. So I, I think, you know, when you look at convergence, the, the thing about it is smart players will know, I would expect over the next three years that the mainstream builders in Ireland will probably start adopting this because when they look at it, they realize how close the standards are now. And, you know, looking at, um, you know, 2008, 2012, 2013, very different building environments, 2015, very different again. What we've seen is, as you know, Jeff and others will attest is convergence. The standards are all heading towards this standard. The difference is that the passive house design community have been here for 30 years. They know how it's put together. They have all the systems in place. And, you know, if you're smart, you'll get, you'll move and you'll get a jump on everyone else. And I think uh, you'll find a lot of builders doing this. You'd hope so. Sorry, sorry to be sort of going on at this point, but it feels, it feels so strange to me that people are not picking up on this. You know, as you say, you're absolutely right. There is a convergence. Everyone is aware of this, but there still seems to be this, this determination that be it in Ireland, in the UK, in France, everywhere else, maybe not in certain other countries like Germany and others, because they've sort of been preparing for this for much longer, but there still seems to be a determination to to build low quality buildings when, as you say, actually it should be a no brainer to just look at what's happening and just being able to do what you've explained there and do something that is cheap. And I'm still very, very struck by the fact that you make it sound so good. And I, I actually believe you from everything that we talk about all here. So I'm maybe being playing devil's advocate here, but I just want to get to the point, to the bottom of why is it that this is not becoming something just natural and that there isn't a, a well, you know, critical mass of mass adoption here? The issue you've got here, Alex, is it's a category error. Like what we're looking at is not building as a technology, but building as a tradition. Mm-hmm. Like so, in the UK and Ireland, the tradition of building is to make the building as shit as you possibly can and charge as much as you possibly can for it. The tradition in Germany is to build to the highest quality. The tradition in Scandinavia and Northern Europe, because of the the elements that they face, they have to build to a higher standard, and there is an inculcated uh, expectation of high quality building. Like when you get to the south of France, like the research you've been doing with your architect, so Alex is planning to build a passive house on his, the the bit of land left at his mum his mum's house when he moves down there. Like you've been finding out about the resistance to any different uh, methods of building. 
than are already there in the tradition because no one likes change. Yeah, it, it's, it's that is it. There's, there's nothing else to it. It's not about quality. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's inertia. Builders don't like doing things differently. Um, architects don't like being told that what they're doing is wrong. Um, and then you have a you've had a market while things have been have been in relatively rude health economically, where the developer does not need to worry about quality to make a sale. So uh, the questions don't come into it then in, in 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 those kinds of situations. And I think what I would say as well is that Mel ha- is one of this kind of rare breed of designers who have find, found ways to kind of de-skill this and to simplify it, you know, too. Um, so there, there, there's, you, you can, you can make, the reality is that it can cost a lot more to build to these standards or a lot, you know, or, or it can be very cost effective depending on how you approach it. And Mel has found a way to be very pragmatic about approaching it. To, and Michael Bennett the same in in in, in other ways with the, with that scheme too you know so there are people out there who are finding ways to to do this um, in a way that you know like I think one of the the innovations there is, uh, that's interesting about um, about Mel's projects is uh, for instance the the use of a of a, a paint applied airtight membrane that's that's a great way to de-skill. Um, the, the build. That's the point, isn't it? Is that we should have you know more males out there with their their sort of that, that thing that you found male of how to how to make this work. This is the number of people we've heard in in different governments saying, "I'm looking for a template to apply so to make mass mass change." This is the sort of thing that we need to be doing more of. And if you found something like this, we need to make that heard more. I think. I mean, again, now to come back to the positive. This is something you're absolutely right. It works. It's simple. It's cheaper, and it's proven to work. And you've got you've been able to answer why it works from a technical perspective, from a, a planning perspective, the whole the whole thing, even from a user experience perspective in the home. You know, with the upside down thing. So, how do we make this become more well known? Apart from obviously putting it on Zero Ambitions podcast. Well, I, I think it's it's quite interesting in terms of the building tradition. The two. I suppose the two, the two people I'd quote there, you've got Bennett's and Durkins. It's not by chance that they're both family contractors. They're, they're, they're contractor developers. I think the difficulty we have is when you've got developers then employing contractors to do projects, invariably it's designs are by spreadsheet. And it's, you know, back in the day, I've colleagues of mine who are being flown out to Germany to look at stick-on skirtings and architraves because you'd save, you know, 150 euros per apartment. So it's down to the you know pennies on the pound stuff when you get to volume building. But where you have the easiest people to talk to, I found about the passive standard were builders and were mainstream builders because I a couple of builders contacted me and I took one or two around and they said, "What's this made of? What's that made of?" And their jaws were on the floor. They were saying, "What? It's only so." They were looking at how easy it was to do it. So you know, if somebody in France builds using you know timber. You do your you hit that standard using timber. Somebody in Ireland is using masonry blockwork, using using masonry blockwork, and somebody is using something else. That's the lovely thing about the standard is it's not technology specific, right? It it you can adapt whatever is being used. So the 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 filter I had on the muse was trying to do something. If I was doing 50 of them, what would I do? How would I keep it as simple as possible? And I remember at one stage, a, a, a colleague of mine, an architect, who was so enthousi- enthused by the by this thermal bridge-free detail and how simple it was and cheap it was to do, 
I explained it to him and it, I remember him looking at me sort of blankly and he's, I thought to him that he doesn't realize how hard it is to get a thermal bridge free detail and how simple this solution is. So you also have people have to learn and they have to get, you know, get to the point where they're trying to make sense of everything and they see the light. People learn at different times as well. But I think the, the easiest people who get this are builders. And that's where something like Moss Arts, um, Massive House Tradesman's course is brilliant because they explain to them how, you know, there's a skill to getting air tightness. Probably the most challenging aspect of the first build we did. Now, I had said to that particular builder, go off and do the Passive House course, Tradesman's course, which he did. But the most difficult part of that build was air tightness. And I remember at the time, it nearly drove me off the deep end because we had to pretty well close the site for three weeks to get down to 0.6 air changes per hour. And um, that was very difficult, but we did it. We managed, I had to go outside the site and take a couple of deep breaths and go back in and go looking for these. So to get from 0.8 to 0.6 was horrendous, really difficult. And Robert at the time, when I told him we were so good. This first Bob Ryan in the Passive Bob, Bob Ryan, he said, oh, I'm terribly sorry. And I said, what do you mean? We're at point, you know, we're at one air change per hour. And he said, it's it's going to be very difficult to get it lower than that. And because the, the air changes were so small. But the funny thing about that is the next job we did to Enerfit, the same builder was on the project. And we got to one in the first air tightness test on the new build because the skills had been learned on the Muse. Right. Now, the interesting thing again for air tightness is we did a cost exercise. This is going back to costs, Alex, again on this. And with the QS, I said, OK, I think I contacted Jeff and I said, Jeff, what's the air tightness standard for most new built houses? And he looked it up on the BR and he said, it's about 2.7 air changes per hour, something like that. Yeah. So after having done the air tightness on the news, I thought, oh my God, this would be horrendous to do retrospectively. So I, as an exercise with a QS, I said, okay, let's work out how much it would cost if we had to retrofit a building built to the current regulations today, which is 2019, if we had to get that down to one air change per hour or 0.6. And I worked out a number and Damien came back to me and he said, probably about 45,000 euros to do it. Now, the, the, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, something like the cost for blower proof on that project was maybe 800 euros. And it did take a bit of time to get it airtight. But you're, at that, you're already at blockwork stage. The problem trying to retrofit it is you have to strip all your walls back, take out your bathrooms, take out your kitchen, take up your floor finishes. Air, make it airtight, do your tests, do your thing, put it all back together again. And it's all in the most expensive bits and pieces, which are your finishes. So it's one of these things, airtightness of all of the things is probably one of the cheapest things to do at the time you're building. But it's a, a multiple of that later on. So even and if you're... One of the most important to do, not just for energy, but for structure, for stopping so moisture it, in air getting into your fabric and wreaking havoc. So people who think this is too much hassle, um, I can't be arsed trying to do a good job. No, no, this it's, it's fundamentally important to get this right. Sorry, I, I would say air tightness is one of the reasons because it's it's a pain to get right particularly at the early stage, a lot of builders would go, oh my God, this is horrendous, I have to stop the job. And I remember at the time, our, our tester, it, it was one of the uh, two times I can remember where I nearly blew up on site, just nearly, usually I'm really good and very level-headed. And I remember, I think this was like the third or fourth air tightness test and he came in and I said, what are we at now? And it was 0.67 or 0.65 or something. And I thought, oh God. And he, 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 was, he took his cheek and he was about a foot away from me looking at me and he said, look, put your cheek an inch away from the wall 
And I did that. And he said, can you feel that? And I just thought to myself, I said, I've, that's, that's it. I've had it. I've, I've, I'm finished. Like, you know, like a wind whisper. <laughs> you know? I had to, I said, Excuse me a minute. I had to walk outside, take a few deep breaths and go, okay, we're nearly there. Go back in. But th- this is the problem is if you're building up 50 of these, you have the bank breathing down your neck, you've got purchasers lined up and you have to stop your site for two weeks and do nothing to get a, a blow door test a certain level. I mean, that would completely drive you off the deep end. But the difference is if you do it once, you have the skills and you can do it again. And don't forget if you're looking at a lot of spec built if I was doing a scheme of 50 houses, half of those would be identical. So I've got all my PHPP calculations, all my thermal bridge calculations, all that design work is divided by 10. So instead of a 1,500 euros or 2,000 euros per dwelling, it could be 150. It's tiny. So, you know, once it, it's done at scale, it's a totally different animal. So, all right. So we have solved new build. No problem. We know what to do. You take a hit on the first go. You spend extra money on design where you need to. Like we are all good. It is all gravy from here on in. Then we get to your big bold claim, and you're you're welcome to uh, roll back on it a bit. Like uh, I'll stick with the polemic, uh, but you can you can respond as you like as you see fit. That there's no extra cost to an benefit retrofit because, I mean, you know. Jeff, having said that you said that, I can see uh, he might have overclaimed and there might be a distinction like, what's the difference between an benefit retrofit and a, a deep retrofit? Two grand or three and a half weeks. I don't know. Like it's, uh, <laughs> it could mean anything. So how do you transpose those skills onto retrofit and make it accessible? Well, well, I think the the first the first thing would be for retrofit would be to specify that your builder has done some sort of training. That's I think that's really important. It's particularly important from the basis of airtightness yeah. because save time. Right now, my experience on I've only done one enter enterfit. We again, it was the same. We were it, it was a, on a house. It was I think the house is one hundred and thirty five or one hundred and forty square meter. Typical sort of 1930s semi-D in Rathgar, family home, couple moving back from the UK that hadn't been touched in 60 years. So we were doing a deep retrofit anyway in the house. So we were extending it. We did a two-story extension to the side, single at the back. We were replacing all the bathrooms, kitchens, M&E, the whole lot. So at one stage, I had just done the muse and I said, okay, would you be interested in looking at trying to achieve the benefit standard? So at that stage, the client said, yeah, I don't mind once it doesn't cost anything extra, which is the normal response. So we said, okay, let's look at it. And at that stage, we didn't want to, there was no desire to get it certified. So we said, that makes it simpler. So we did the exercise with our quantity surveyor. We had our budget, we had, we got our planning, we did our budget for a build and we said, okay, let's work out. Again, I just handed it over to QS and say, right, how much will it cost to get this to the benefit standard? So again, you know, the specifications I'd used back, sorry, I meant to say back in 2008, the first project that I used got to the passive levels of walls, floors, and triple glazing. The extra overcast there for that superior specification was 4%. In the intervening period, it was cost neutral. No, in actual fact, it's slightly cheaper to do external insulation than to do cavity wall now. So we did the exercise on that particular project. And I think the finished building size is about 170, 180 square meters. And it was 1% extra in terms of build cost for that job. 
That was it. So it did. So the answer to that is yes. At that point, it did cost more. How much did it cost? It was one percent on your bill cost. Was that factoring in the? Didn't you have underfloor heating in that in that job? Well, one of the one of the reasons why it came in one percent over was that when we modelled it up and when Bob modelled it up, he came back and he said, "You know what?" He said, "You don't need heating upstairs in this house at all. We, you might need a convector heater, you know, a two hundred euro wall panel heater, but you won't need it because the bedrooms are above. It's more conservative existing layout. Bedrooms are above your." living rooms downstairs. The client's preference was for underfloor throughout because that's what they were used to. So I said, fine, we put in underfloor upstairs. And then um, six weeks after the client moved in, they turned off the underfloor and they haven't had it on in three years. They don't need it. So <laughs> that, the 1%, yeah, does it cost more 1%? Yeah. So, the, but the, as was the interesting thing about the Enerfit was that the uh, on that one, we used decentralized mechanical uh, MVHR on it was a centralized unit. We used the same, it was the same buildups I used on the Muse, same thermal bridging. So we tried to use what I'd say are my standard specification, which was simplified anyway, and adapt that to the existing, uh, the new build sections of the retrofit. And then there was brick on the front elevation. So we used uh, therm boards to insulate that as, as good as possible. So there were some things about it that were slightly more expensive. And Calcitherm, I should say, is a great product. But so this, Dan, for Dan's benefit, um, this is yeah. an internal insulation product, but it's got, it's, it's internal insulation, as you may know, Dan, you have to be very careful about um, because of, yeah. Because of the risk, uh, and brick in particular, brick is like a sponge; it just absorbs moisture, right? Um, and if you stop it from, if you stop heat getting into it from the from the from the room, and and you let and you let, uh, you know, you're getting a, a brick that gets soaked. Uh, the temperature can get so low behind the brick um, that you you can end up having the brick spalling, like crumbling. So, so spalling is like the frost thaw cycle where you damage the integrity of the brick. Yeah, and it just starts falling apart, you know. Um, so uh, calcitherm is a, a, a calcium silicate board from ecological building systems. And the idea with that product is that it's you, you have modest enough insulation benefits through it because you're not aiming to go to kind of crazy levels of insulation, but it's got this sort of moisture wicking uh, pro property whereby it can it can absorb and release moisture, um, and, and therefore you don't suffer those kinds of problems. It's a, it's a specialist product designed specifically for preventing these kinds of problems and, and enabling you to insulate at the same time. No. It's funny you mentioned the underfloor heating was never used. Like, oh god, you must be up in arms about the wasted embodied carbon there. Like, oh man, <laughs> why should we do that? <laughs> well, no, it's not. Not there wasn't a huge amount because we used. Uh, it was lightweight upstairs, and uh, it was. It's interesting. It was just one of those things that if we didn't have the PHPP calculation or Robert's expertise, you know, most architects would be putting that in as a matter of course on houses. So, you know, the again, it's the value engineering aspect. When you go, to, when you trust the model, the modeling is so good. If you trust it, it will give you these savings. So, I mean, 1% effectively is cost neutral because if you go out to tender to five different contractors or four different contractors, there might be a spread of 10, 15% between the lowest and the highest. At 1% on a build, that's probably the cost of a designer sofa. So the way I would sell it to clients is I'd say to them, okay, you know, it may be 1% extra to get to this standard, buy an Ikea sofa instead of the one you were going to buy from designer X or designer Y. And that, that will save you the money you're spending now on your building. So it's yeah, the sofa. Have a comfortable house rather than a comfortable sofa. Yeah. So it's, it's the sofa test is, is if it's 
the same price or cheaper than a designer sofa. That's really what you're talking about. And I mean, the amount of jobs over the years that I would have worked on where everyone, you know, it's value engineered, everyone's looking at every penny and, you know, there's war over costs. And the next thing, once the house has moved into the existing furniture doesn't fit and you've got, you know, the really expensive tables and chairs are brought in, which are then, you know, within seven years, the average lifespan of a kitchen is seven years. So, you know, these things are changed. So I think it's it's your relative priorities. I think it's for designers, it's useful to say that it is slightly more expensive. I think it means your coverage. That extra overbuild cost didn't include the modeling costs at design stage. But again, that's something for the lead designer to say, you know what, do you need a project manager? Get a thermal modeler instead. You know, maybe you take a slight drop in your fees to account for that. The cert- certification is tricky. And we found the cost associated that was, was I think, for, to get certification. I'm trying to remember now what it was. But about a year after the project was finished, the client decided to go for certification on it. So, which is the worst call you can get because you have to go back and do your final air tightness yeah. test. You know, in fairness, we got it, So, which is great. So it meant that what was built was was fairly robust. But the interesting thing about, I suppose, that particular one, again, looking at the job through slightly cynical eyes, you say, well, does it actually work? You know, and luckily on that project, we've uh, the clients were very interested in this and have an aptitude towards it. So we've ended up sort of monitoring indoor air quality and energy usage and all that on the building for the past three years. And now we have PV put on it as of about two or three months ago. And Brendan is looking at that as well. So we found the really eye-catching thing and the data coming back from that. Now, this is the design of it wasn't done to be energy efficient. It's, you know, three, you know, four bed semi-detached house, double height dining space on it, three occupants in it. We found that, you know, 24 hours a day, all year, average temperature in the bedrooms, 18 to 19 degrees. Average temperature in the living room, 21 to 22. And the energy costs there, which we're modeling, and again, I I don't trust it, we're, we're measuring it at the moment. It's about 800 kilowatt hours for the year. At the current tariffs, I think uh, Brendan has the heat pump on there, an hour at night and an hour during the day. If it's exceptionally cold, it goes two hours day and night. 800 kilowatts a year, I think is about 300 euros a year, less than that. So that's for, that's your... Always comfortable, all the time house. But, yeah, I mean, but it, it's, the, it's the comfort level is, is the really eye-catching thing there. So it, it works. And the interesting thing is that's got an air tightness level of one. So it doesn't have the 0.6. So one is a lot easier to achieve than 0.6. So the interesting thing for me is for retrofit, you get this really, really good indoor air comfort levels, uh, air quality and comfort levels in it. That's a decentralized Lunos system, which uses oscillating fans in the building. So you don't need the big ducts going around the place. But, you know, it works. And then when I've seen the graph and the numbers coming back, the thing that got me was the comfort of this house is extraordinary. So going back to your original question about the cost, does it cost more? The answer to that is it depends. It's like <laughs> it, it's like a ret- it's like a, 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 an energy retrofit. If you have a really a showroom quality house that somebody wants to upgrade for the purposes of to an A or B rating, they're going to have to tear that house apart. And it's going to be very, they're going to have to move it and tear it apart to get it to that level. If you're doing a big job anyway, if you're, you know, doing a big, deep retrofit anyway, the extra over cost could be 1% on that, which is... Assuming you're planning to build to the building regulations with your retrofit. If you're planning an illegal building and having horrible living conditions, uh, then it's a different kettle of fish, you know. 
Um, yeah, and I mean, again, you're back to the, the, the airtightness again, I think is, for me, is critical on this because at this one, we got to a level of point, we got to a level of one, that was the requirement for it. Again, the cost to get to that retrospectively is really, really expensive to do it. And this is one of the challenges with sort of the SEAI one-stop shop retrofit strategy that we have to retrofit 500 dwellings is the cost to get your fabric upgraded so that a heat pump will work is really expensive to do it and it's very difficult. Uh, and in some instances, it's it's not possible to get there. But I think if you are, you know, there's certain things it can do. If you, Like if you're extending your building, make sure that the extension is airtight. The interesting thing is with existing buildings, once you don't take down the original plaster, that acts as an airtight layer as well. And I think, Jeff, you remember there was a study done in 2012 of I think 20 odd buildings and some of the corporation houses that were built in the 1930s had air tightness levels of less than three. Yeah, the average uh, the average was, was was less than five for uh, for for the the, the six like, pre-war houses in the study. Yeah. So I mean, you you know, you have certain typologies which are really good to to start off with. And you know, plaster, existing plaster and masonry walls, that's an actual fact. The extra week we spent to get that building airtight was on the existing building and the particular area was the party wall where we'd sockets in it. We had to look at that. But that's again where the paint on membrane was brilliant because you didn't have to try and get into the nukes and crannies to try and tape it up and make it airtight. Stick a nozzle in, press the button and it sprays it and you're done. So it was great. So again, it's 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 trying to, it's developing up an aptitude for it. And the guys that were doing the airtightness had done the muse. So they knew what to do and they knew the sequence to do it. So and it's that, a skill. And, and that's it's a broader point here as well. Dan, you were talking to the new build about, um, about uh, pain on the first one. Not necessarily. As we develop competency uh, across the board in the industry in this stuff, and we are getting there slowly, uh, that pain will be less. And in some cases, it won't even exist. Yeah, well, so what... What we've been talking about here today fits very much into that paradigm that we landed at when we were talking to Peter Warman and Sally Godber, where the way these projects work, whether it's a new build or retrofit that we're looking at, the needs of the the industry and wider society uh, more generally, because we all need this, everyone needs this, everyone needs a comfortable home, everyone needs to reduce carbon use, etc. We need the charismatic leader. In this case, I am casting you, Mel, as this charismatic leader, because you need someone who's dedicated to the cause, who's prepared to put in the extra. Like you keep referencing people who drop their rates to produce a better product. And like in all my Englishness, that seems anathema to the whole business culture I've experienced all of my working life, including some of the time I was in Ireland as well. Now you start with your charismatic leader, then you need to build a team. So your retrofit Avengers, who are have their various skill sets, who are prepared to do the best possible job and apply them in each specific and set, unique set of circumstances. And the bit we always seem to hit where the difficulties are, where the savings are really going to be made, is in the pipeline. We need to keep that team together because if they dissolve, the the acquired experience is sort of diffused and lost, and it isn't able to be applied to other projects because they won't be with like-minded people. People will be too many people are likely to be learning if they even get a chance to work on a, a similarly motivated project. And this appears to be where we need to, this appears to be the place, the only place where we are going to be able to find the economies of scale 
that are going to make retrofit as an industry more accessible en masse. At the moment, we're still trying to work out where the finance is coming from and what sort of shape these projects need to look like and able to make it make retrofit work as an industry because it's too dear. And it's interesting. So when, Jeff, you said there's no extra cost to benefit, the wishful thinking part, retrofit doesn't have to be that expensive. When the difference here is achieving benefit standard doesn't need to be more expensive, but deep retrofit <laughs> is still going to be really time-consuming, disruptive and costly. There's no getting away from that at the moment. And we need to be thinking about how do we get this stuff bedded in so we can yeah. build the economy. I th- what, what, what I think with this, the, the point with this, and I was aware of this, of course, up front, the fact that you know it's not as simple as to say interfit doesn't cost extra. There are situations where it does uh, uh, cost a lot extra, and the situations, as Mel has shown, uh, where where it need not cost any extra at all. What this points to is the need for a framework approach or a, a strategic approach to to planning how we tackle existing buildings, which does not expect to find... It might be that we have a consistent methodological approach to all of them, but we do not have a one-size-fits-all approach. We we know that we're going to have different different solutions to propose depending on the unique circumstances that a that a particular well maybe not unique but but the particular circumstances that each building presents taking account of the age of the house taking account of the needs and the budgets and so on of the of the of the people taking account what the conservation officer has to say and so on there's all of these kinds of things that need to be taken into account but the point but what but my fear is that when people just keep on drumming the message about extra benefit costing too much, for instance, people have a tendency to massively oversimplify things. And that message gets through and people just think they rule out something like benefit in any project because because they've lost that nuance. Well, I think, and I'll throw it to Mel, we should think about wrapping up as well soon, is that, so you talked about the extra cost of certification and the, the problems that going through a certification can throw up. I mean, even if you have planned for it, it can create challenges because like achieving the extra bit the last bit is always always feels like the most time consuming and will has the potential to be the most costly but if you are performance monitoring so you know whether what you designed is going to work over the long term and you can build that base of experience you don't necessarily need to reach for an benefit certification to feel confident that the product that you are creating like the deep retrofit, the out the outcome is going to be something comparable. I mean, is that fair, or am I being too simplistic? No, I, I, no, I think it is. That the thing that the interfit has taught me is that if you can you reach that standard on a new build, you're there because they, you know if you're target if you're looking at heating costs and and comfort internal air quality, it's incredible. Like that's that's an A one bit rated building. That's lower than A1 without any renewables, and it's monitored at that level. So it has, I mean, for me, I don't see, you know, I sort of been there, done that. I'm not that pushed about certification at all. If I know, if I've got my energy design done at the outset, my PHPB done at the outset, if I can keep hold of those specifications as I go through, I know with 99.9% certainty that the owner is going to get these really, really high quality outcomes at the back end of this and we'll have really good really low energy bills you will have really really good levels of comfort i mean first and foremost i think the passive standard is a quality control system absolutely number one second part of this is comfort is the comfort levels for the same spend are unbelievable 
Uh, and having experienced them myself, it was the way I equated was my first few times in that in our house. It was a bit like going down the country on holidays and the night sleep, first night, two nights sleep you get, you're knocked out because of the oxygen. That's the way it felt. Uh, and, and the last thing, the last thing is is energy efficiency and cost because you have you have the quality control at the front end of it due to the proper planning of it. You have the comfort levels which are proven because there's no energy gap at all, and then you have these savings at the back end, even with comfort taking when people have heating on all the time. So you know the cost of Enerfit. I, I'm working on a project at the moment. The client would like to do Enerfit. Surprise, surprise, the cost is too much. So they're saying, well, what's the cost premium for Enerfit on this project? I'm struggling to find a number. I, she's expecting a number on this. The couple are expecting a number. And I don't think there is one because I know if I reduce my performance slightly, I'm going to spend probably nine or 10,000 euros extra on underfloor, at least upstairs. So, you know, you might save a little bit on your type of glass. Insulation, if I change the insulation type from, say, phenolic to EPS, slightly cheaper, you know, if I'm building to the building regs, my fabric cost is pretty much identical. You're looking at mechanic, you still have to put in a mechanical ventilation system. I still have to put in some form of primary heating and they're getting a less quality product at the end of it. So in terms of the end of it cost, I would say now that the building we did was that's nearly five years ago it's completed. Enerfit will, if you're doing a deep retrofit, Enerfit costs no extra to do it. If you want to do your certification at the back end of it, away you go. And it's a lovely thing to have because apparently there isn't that many out there. It's but a useful the, specter too, Mel, I think as well. Sorry? I, think, I think it's a useful specter to have for um for what? the guys it working. But I mean, in other words, it, that, that, that they could be held accountable in that way, you know? Well, no, I, well, I, I think... The interesting thing from that particular project was at the same time as we finished, a scheme of uh, uh, luxury houses was uh, launched down the road. Now, they're slightly bigger, but the sales price on a house that was, you know, maybe 250 square meters was 3 million euros and they were A2 rated. So the owner was chatting to the owner and they said, you know, what? actually, isn't it interesting to think that our house has a better performance level than the new houses down the road for 3 million euros? And I said, that's a nice feeling to have. I mean, the, the, I think the biggest barrier to the adoption of this standard is probably consumers, where they view it as being superfluous or something extra or not intrinsic. I think it should be looked at as being, you know, if you can get, for example, if you could get low finance, I think low finance mortgages are probably going to come in that are meaningful here. I know in the UK, they've, they've made an appearance. You're going to be future-proofing your house. You have... All of those years of that sort of energy comfort as well ahead of you when you do it. Uh, it's a total no-brainer. I think that the other aspect you're saying there of the deep retrofit and the challenges with that, I think that's a different discussion to have. And I think one of the issues with the retrofit program at the moment is utility costs, embodied carbon and this stuff. Is there an optimum minimum that we should be looking at in terms of fabric? Fabric first is great when you're doing the fabric, but when you're not, if you're faced with a protected structure or a house that's in really good condition, it sort of needs a high, we need a high capacity heating system that's carbon neutral. Somebody needs to come up with something that you can just plug in where you don't have to take a house apart and do that. Now, I know air to air is one particular solution on it, but for example, what about storage heaters? You know, you can do, the problem with storage heaters is running costs. So, and and the other thing is, I mean, you know, a hundred years ago, we were putting in storage heaters in 
national monuments. And the reason for that was they provided a heating, an adequate heating source, source, but you weren't introducing water into protected structures where they sensitive ceilings. If you had leaks, you had all sorts of problems. But a storage heater could, could you know, a sophisticated storage heater in, could use, you know, you could balance the grid in terms of taking energy in at night. It heats it during the day. It doesn't give you your ventilation, doesn't sort of ventilation issues on it, but it's still an all-electric solution. The biggest problem with that is our utility costs. So maybe a solution to, you know, decarbonizing our heating system and be 400,000 oil-fired boilers in Ireland would be replace them all with storage heaters and give people, a, you know, a quarter. If it's storage heat, put them on a separate circuit and charge them a quarter the cost of normal tariff for those to heat the house. Yeah. In those terms, it's worth having a look at the discrete heat lads. I think the website's discreteheat.co.uk. Former Dragon's Den contestants. Duncan's used them. I think they're, they're getting involved, or they're at least talking about River Clyde Homes, I think. They were involved in the Renfrewshire Four in a Block study with Laurie McElroy from uh, Strathclyde University. Yeah. We That's yeah. still a water-based heating system, though. Ah, they don't only do water-based heating systems. So oh. where they work with the passive house uh, system, so like, you know, a retired couple who built a passive house, sold off their old six-bedroom mansion and uh, getting their place ready with the big garden to have the grandkids older over, they will devise a really basic electric skirting board heating system mm. that can be present in like just one or two rooms for the coldest days of the year or if the kids are in and out of the house, in and out of the garden, so you've got extra air changes where all the heat's being pissed out the door, they I, they have the skirting board system, which for limited electricity cost will warm up the room quickly because it's it's like having an electric heater, I suppose. Yeah. I think uh, we, we wrote, Kate DeSettlencourt wrote a piece for us a long time ago about electric storage heating, but only in the context of like passive house kind of buildings. And yeah. I think I think the the good luck trying to get uh, you know such a dramatic reduction in the tariffs. I'm not saying don't argue for it, but um, <laughs> that's you know that yeah. is a hell of an ask, you know. Yeah. Um, right, uh, we better wrap up. I think um, Mel, thank you so much for joining us. That that's been a lot to take in and a really interesting. Well, it's felt like you've talked us through in some great depth two or three case studies there, which have articulated the achievability of all this and a whole bunch of how to overcome the problems. Proper briefing and design up front. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything you want to say that you've not had a chance to put across or anything you want to plug? Have you got any more articles imminent? Any? Uh, yeah, articles? actually, there's, there's one, I suppose, I suppose that the next, you know, you, you can't do everything at, in one project or in one go, right? So you have to sort of make a modest target, see how far you can get. It's the nice thing about doing my own house was I had no fear of failure. So we took a run at this and said, if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. Brendan and Geraldine on the Enerfit house, it was actually, they said, let's give it a go, which is great. When you get a client or in your situation like that, it's brilliant because you're not looking over your shoulder. You don't have to make sure everything works. And a couple of things we tried out on the demand control side didn't work as we thought. We said, fine, but we, we it most of it did work. And we uh, designers have to be a little bit more adventurous on this stuff and say, push the boat out a little bit more. 
I think the interesting thing as well from the, I think Tim Martell did the exercise on the Muse, even though I hadn't quantified it as I went through, I had an eye on the embodied carbon and we met the uh, REBA 2030 target on it, which is great. And I would view that one as, I hadn't a specific target for embodied carbon on that. I had an eye on it, but with using pretty, I would say pretty conservative and existing building methods like we were chatting about earlier you know what's your local building method solid block work timber etc just being a bit careful about what you're choosing we got down to that level that 2030 target so now i'm saying great passive standard cheaper to build passive plus cheaper to build enerfit same price now let's see can we go and tackle embodied carbon how low can we go yeah. on embodied carbon on the next one to achieve the same standards. So that would be the next target I would have would be embodied carbon. And that would, you know, looking at, say, the, uh, you know, the Green Building Council recommendations of minimizing uh, traffic throughout a system, scaling it up, you know, uh, keeping car parking on the perimeter, looking at projects like Goldsmith Street, which are excellent exemplars there. And we know the Signum Homes did the timber frame structure that down in Cork. So we have the expertise here to do really high quality, low embodied carbon buildings. Mm. There's a lot of talk about it. Very little people are doing it. So what I would love to do on the next one is sort of gotten the, the leather medal of the, the, the passive stuff. That's fine. And I've had the learnings from that. Now I want to see, can you have the embodied carbon? How low can you go without spending a fortune on it? How low can you go on your typical dwelling, which again means right sizing. We know that Pat Barry has talked about, you know, 30 square meters average per bed space should be about 75 square meters. You need to right size. We need to get the net square footage internally up. We need to reduce our wastage in our buildings, minimize your land take for your buildings, all that good stuff. Let's look at the materials we're using and the circularity of it. Can we do it? Can we get the embodied carbon down? Can we design them so that it's reusable at the end of it. So that's what I'd be looking at now would be that. Do you, as, far as, as far as I'd be concerned, based on my own experience, passive standard is a done deal. I'm just waiting for everyone else to realize that. They'll eventually, because of convergence, it'll eventually happen. And, and, um, and because it's simpler and cheaper, it will happen. But it's the embodied carbon is the real challenge. And I think that's what we should be looking at here. And the, the retrofit stuff of the simple way for the retrofit, that's another good and not to, to sort of un, unpack as well. One of the other things you can talk about, you take an hour to talk about it, is base loads and NZ buildings. That's we'll another... Come, we'll, we'll come back on that. We'll have to have... <laughs> I mean, I have to get Tim in as well, actually, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tim, Tim in. If you want to have a good download on that, get Tim in. It would be very good for you. But um, embodied carbon is the, is the next target. How, how low can you go on a standard budget? And how you know what, Mel? Um, you mentioned the the, air, the the aerated blocks there. As far as I'm aware, the blocks that were used in that case are the romantic blocks. They, they actually don't use GGBS in their blocks. They could do. I've seen other uh, aerated block manufacturers using cement alternatives before at high percentages. It could be done. And that would dramatically reduce. So in other words, there is a dramatic reduction that could be achieved if you could just, it's up to the designers to badger the manufacturers to go and substitute materials, you know. And, uh, well, I, I tell you what, we talked about this before, and I'd be very, if there is a manufacturer out there who's willing to produce a hollow block with 50% GGBS, I will use them on the next project because a hollow block will use 35, 40% less material at the outset. 
if you can have that again using GGBS, I'm 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 all in. I'll do it again. I'm I'm yeah. there. And I should say as a plug for ourselves as well, but it's very relevant to this. Durkins have just completed their second uh, passive house scheme in your backyard, Mel, which is Church Road in uh, in in Killiney, in K- Killy Brack, as you call it. Um, and uh, that scheme is nine inch hollow block with external insulation. Um, now, again, uh, they, they got GGBS green, uh, green cement into the mortars in that case, but I don't know whether the manufacturers don't think the manufacturers did GGBS uh, to any meaningful percentage in the block work. Absolutely. It's a, it's a priority. Anyway, listen, thank you so much, Mel. That was fantastic. We'll, uh, we're delighted to have you. We will have you back on. Uh, pleasure. Yeah. If, yeah. Cheers. If, the, if you have any links, we'll drop them in the show notes. I'll get you a Twitter handle and whatnot, presuming you're still active on there because I've seen you fairly active in the past. All right. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. Join ACAN, join the ACB, join the IGBC. Give us a shout about the consultancy if you need any help with anything from decarbonisation strategy, change management to messaging and communications about all of these issues. Oh, have I forgotten anything, Jeff? Research. Alex? Yeah, research, re- yeah. And also, given that Mel is also a board member like I am of the Passive House Association of Ireland, join your local Passive House uh, organisation. You know, whether it's the, the Passive Association of Ireland, the Passive House Trust or Passive House Canada or whoever it might be. There are, there are these organizations are filled with wonderfully nerdy practitioners and designers who, who care and who are trying to do good work. Um, and if you don't know how to find that, email jeff at zeroambitions.partners. Email him directly. He'll point you in the right direction. He might not send you a fully fledged email, but he'll send you the link. All right. Cheers, everyone. Goodbye. Thanks. Thanks, oh, guys. Thanks, Grace.